Abundance of love, abundance of grace. Now to that cross, you took my place. Oh God, you paid my ransom. My ransom. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people. Now, here's Pastor Scott. But Paul started right. Paul had a horrible, listen, Paul had a horrible reputation among God's people in the first century church. He was working as a persecutor of the church. And so when he said, I thank God, he meant it. He said, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Now, Paul had said in other places that it wasn't according to the letter of the law because the, if you looked at Paul's life according, and you judged him the way people judge pastors now, they never would have let him in. Here's a guy that had Christians killed. Now, could you imagine the average church? Here's that average church elects pastors. Not our church because we follow the Bible. But the average church has a pulpit search committee. And when they're looking for a preacher, they, they get five or six of the people with money in the church and think they should make all the decisions, and they, they just start looking at preacher resumes. Could you imagine looking at Paul's resume? You got Mother Jones looking at Paul's resume, and, and she realizes Paul was the arm of the government that had her grandmother executed for talking about Jesus. Y'all think Mother Jones is going to vote for the Apostle Paul? No. But he knew God put him into ministry even though he had done lots of bad stuff wrong. And I want to tell you something. Everybody in the world but Jesus has done bad stuff wrong. And, and he, he went on to say he was a blasphemer in verse 13, a persecutor. He injured the church. He walked around putting people in jail and having people executed just for claiming Jesus. Could you imagine being in a church? And here's the crazy thing about church folk. They... Church folk love gossip. Let me say something to you gossipers out there. Stop it. Stop it. Then no, Listen, talking about God's people, talking about anybody uh, is, is a trick of the devil to get you to stop focusing on growth in your own life. But could you just imagine people talking about, uh, here comes Paul to preach in their church, and just two years th- or just four years prior, he had been executing people in that city for being a Christian? Oh, man, church folk love to have some juice. On their leaders. Well, they had all kinds of stuff to talk about Paul. But you know what? He said, God put me into the ministry. And I want to tell you something today. Every, every true man of God, woman of God on this planet was put into ministry by God. And you can watch and see the ones that last were called by God. The ones that fade did it mostly on their own or got sidetracked somewhere. But he said, I did all this bad stuff before I was a believer. He said in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. I ought to preach this verse next week. Look, look, look at verse 14. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. Do you know that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you think God has run out of grace yet? Do you think God's grace is still exceeding abundant with faith and love? God is a gracious Loving, faithful God. We claim to be his followers. So guess what? We should be gracious, loving, and faithful too. Paul needed a lot of mercy on his life because there were people in his congregation that didn't like him, and rightly so. Paul needed a lot of grace and mercy and love in his life because he had done things 
that had hurt people in the cities he was preaching in. And he knew that it was God's business. But once God saved Paul, changed him, he, he became such an icon in the kingdom of God. God used him to write half the books in the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he said, Be followers of me as I follow Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you this for sure. If you followed Paul in every way for over and over and every minute and every way he did, he did some wrong too. Anybody? What he was saying is what every parent, life coach, mentor wants to say to the people that are under them. Take the good. Oh, I see some stuff in my kids sometimes, and, and, and it makes me proud. And I, I think um, that, that, that that's, that's something good that they learn from me. But then I see them doing some bad stuff, and I think, oh, they learned that from their mother. Um, <laughs> from me. Don't you want your kids to only take the good of you, the best of you? Listen, there were people nitpicking Paul, and God was using him. And he was thanking God for saving him. He was thanking God for changing him. In verse 13, he said, I used to be a blasphemer. In verse 15, he said he was the chief among sinners. You see, here's something Paul did that we got to make sure that we do. Because the Bible says we have these stories for our examples that we can learn from them. He remembered what he used to be. He remembered what he used to be. He never forgot and he never got over what God did for him on the Damascus Road. And this is what I believe is the determining factor on whether or not you're happy as a Christian or you're miserable as a Christian. Now, I'm talking to people who are saved. Uh, some people are just filled with joy. You see that a lot in young Christians. Some of y'all haven't felt that joy since you were young. I've heard people say for over 40 years, Pastor, I just wish I could be as excited as I was when I first got saved. God doesn't want you to be as excited as you were when you first got saved. That was baby stuff. He wants you to be even more excited now. But I understand what people are saying because here's what happens. If you ever get really saved, when that happens, you're going to be excited. I'm talking about you're going to be walking around thinking the, the, the sky is prettier because Jesus is Lord. You're going to see a bird and say, my God made that bird. You're going to look at oceans and mountains different. You're, you're, you're going to get up out of bed and you're going to thank God for waking me up. But young Christians, they have that excitement. Why? Because there is nothing that feels better than having the sin of the world taken off you, having the sin and the stain of your own situation removed and being clean before God. And when people get born again as little kids, they're excited. Little kids into faith. God was talking to the seven churches in the book of the Revelation, and he said, he said uh, that some, some people had left their first love. And what that first love is talking about, it's a, it's a new love. It's a young love. We call it puppy love. Some of y'all have heard me say it before. The, the way I've seen that best in my life in the natural is in young teenage girls, 12, 13-year-old girls. Uh, they, they get off the phone, and they start screaming. And just, he likes me. He likes me. He likes me. And they're so excited. You, you, you get that uh, young love. Some of y'all had it in your lifetime. Some of y'all too mean to have had it. But some of y'all had it uh, where you'd be on the phone late at night with, with, your, with your sweetheart. And you'd be like, okay, we got to get some sleep. Um, I love you. Go ahead and hang up. I'm not going to hang up. You hang up. I'm not going to hang up. Well, let's just lay here and listen to each other breathe. 
that's ridiculous. And you wake up with a sore ear. I'm not telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what I know. But when you're, when you're in that type of young, new love, there's an excitement that happens. And Paul kept that excitement alive. How? Because he never forgot. And he never got over what God did for him when he saved him. And I'm here to tell you today, some of you have forgotten. Some of you have forgotten what you used to be and what God saved you from. Some of you have gotten over how awesome it is that God saved you. I say stuff that some of y'all, it doesn't even resonate with you. When I say stuff like, uh, God did enough for me at Calvary. If he never does another thing for me beyond saving my soul, he's done more for me than I could ever ask. Listen, if that don't let you fire, your wood's wet. Paul never forgot and he never got over what happened to him on that Damascus road. In Acts 22, he tells his story to Festus, the governor. And then in Acts 26, he tells his testimony to King Agrippa. And I'm going to talk to you about testimony today. See, there's power in your testimony if you have one. And you ought to have one. If I came to you right now and I said, tell me about how you came into the kingdom of God. If you started off with, well, I grew up in church and I've just always loved the Lord. Uh, red flag. Red flag. Uh, that'd be like if you asked someone, how old are you? And they said, well, you know, I grew up on the planet and I've just kind of always been here. <laughs> okay, they make medicine for people like you. Um, there has to be a time. The Bible says you, you must receive him. And Paul talks about his testimony here in Acts 26. And I'm going to read the longest passage of Scripture I read um, every year around this time. And I want you to follow along and listen. He, see, here's the trap of the devil. The devil wants you to think because you've heard this before that there's nothing for you to hear today. But God is a right now God. Amen? He's always speaking when people are listening. In Acts 26.1, the Bible says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak in your defense. So Paul gestured with his hand, starting his defense. Now Agrippa is the king, and Paul keeps getting arrested. And every time Paul gets arrested, he tells these people what Jesus did for him uh, when he got saved. And they keep telling him to stop preaching about the resurrection because it was creating a stir inside the city. And they're like, enough about that Jesus being raised from the dead. They didn't want people to know that. And so Paul starts his defense. And in verse 2 he said, I'm fortunate, King Agrippa, that you're the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. And in my mind, my mind is active. Now, I don't, I don't speak into the Bible, but sometimes I, I, I get a, a, little, a little idea of what might have happened. So Paul is talking to King Agrippa. You got a whole room full of haters out there, these Jewish leaders that wanted to shut Paul up. And he's, he's, he's telling nice things to the king. Oh, I'm so fortunate, King Agrippa. You're the one here in my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. That's, that, that's how I see it going on. Anyway, in verse 3, he said, For I know you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. 
Paul is filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, see, most people, if they say, I got filled with the Holy Ghost in 2016, they're about to tell you when they started speaking in tongues. But if you do a Google search on filled with the Holy Ghost, you're going to find more times than ever it says, and they spake the word of God with boldness. There's lots of different things that happen to people when they get filled with the Holy Ghost. But Paul is filled with the Holy Ghost, and he's speaking boldly in a place where most people did not speak boldly. He went so far as to say to the king, now, please listen to me patiently. Uh, nobody told the king to be paid. That, that'd be like your mom or your dad going in on you and saying, look here, do me a favor. Just let me talk and you be patient. If you were raised right, you just felt the hair on the back of your neck duck, trying to bend your head over. Uh, but Paul is being bold here. Because he knows he's got something to say. And in verse 4 he says, as the Jewish leaders, <laughs> look over his shoulder back at them. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, looked over his shoulder at the other half of the crowd. If they would admit it, they know that I've been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Paul's getting persecuted by his own people. Now, the Bible says we have these stories for our examples. Paul got saved for real, and he got a whole crowd of haters. Guess what's going to happen if you ever get saved for real? A whole crowd of haters. Paul got saved for real, and his own people turned against him. Guess what's going to happen if you ever get saved for real? Some of your own people going to turn against you. In verse 6, he said, now I'm on trial of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have, yet your majesty, they accuse me of having this hope. Here's what he's saying. He said, I'm on trial for believing that God raises people from the dead. This is the same stuff they've been preaching since day one. This is the same stuff they've been preaching since we were 12 tribes. They believe the same thing, but they're accusing me for having hope in the resurrection. Verse 8, it says, Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Mm, if I had time this morning, I, I really would love to believe how much, to, uh, love to find out how much you believe God raises people from the dead. Oh, I really do. I've gotten so many well wishes, and I thank God for everybody that prays for me, that loves me and my family. Um, you know, we've been through some challenges in our life, and I appreciate everybody' uh, well wishes and, and, and good-meaning thoughts and prayers. Uh, I had somebody tell me this week on social media, uh, God had to take your wife because he needed her more than you did. I thought you wouldn't want to be in a room with me for 18 seconds. God never took anybody to heaven because he needed them. <laughs> and I can tell you for sure, he definitely didn't need her more, more than I did. But I wonder how much you really believe God raises the dead. I'm not talking about taking human beings and make angels out of them. Here, here's, here's a little good theology for you. You're not going to leave this earth and become an angel in heaven. If you're a worshiper of God in this life, you're going to leave this earth and go to heaven and be, guess what? a worshiper of God. But God raises people from the dead. They were telling Paul, we're going to kill you for saying this. And it's the same stuff they were saying. How many of y'all know sometimes your haters are even more guilty of what they're accusing you of? 
It happens so much, they, they've got a psychological term for it, projecting. Projecting. They, so, so much so, they trained us. When, when I was taking counseling classes in college, they, they, would, they would teach us things about how to counsel people and, and trends and probabilities. And do you know if, if your spouse is constantly accusing you of cheating on them, guess what they're probably the ones doing? Okay, so you understand projecting. And he, they're, they're hating him for the same stuff, and they're blaming him. And he's saying, look, you, we, we say we all believe the same thing. Why do you find it incredible that God can raise the dead? In verse 9, he said, I used to. Oh, I want you to have a used to life. The Bible, Christianity, is all about being changed from what you used to be to what you are. Going from the old you to the new you. And he said that I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. This is what I was talking about earlier. He went around locking people up just for saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. He even had people executed for this statement. Now, here's the funny thing. You can find dirt on every preacher in the country. Uh, but I think Paul is the only great called by God preacher that you could find. He, he used to murder Christians. Now, I'm telling you what, some of you are like, well, I, can't, I, I just can't follow Pastor so-and-so because he got ishers. There is no word in the human language called ishers. Uh, but Paul had some real ishers. And he's saying, this is the kind of guy I used to be. Verse 11, he said, many times I, put, I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. This sound like the guy you want to sit under? This, this, this persecutor of real Christianity? In verse 12, he said, one day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the, the authority and commission of the leading priests, about noon, your majesty, I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. Listen to verse 14. We all fell down, and I heard a voice. <laughs> How many of y'all know just because God's moving, everybody ain't, ain't getting touched? Uh, there, there'll be people in this room today that will feel blessed that they came into the house of the Lord. Others will feel like, meh. Mm. Everybody fell down. But Paul had something special happen to him. He heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. I want to tell everybody in the room right now, if you're here and you're not truly born again, but you, it's been bugging you, you know you need to get saved, you know it ain't all right with your soul, let me tell you something. The same God that told Paul, it's useless to fight against my will, hear me good, it's useless to try to run from God. You better go ahead and give in, let go, and let God have his way. In verse 15, Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Oops. Think about how this must have been for Paul. He's got paper in his pocket to go and arrest people, to go and kill people for following Jesus. Now, guess who... Uh, supernaturally, miraculously is appearing to him out of thin air. The same Jesus who you 
are persecuted. Verse 16 said, Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. I want to tell you, this is Paul's moment of salvation. This is Paul's moment of being ordained for the purpose that God had saved him for. And there never was a less likely human being to be used by God to go and change the world for Jesus. If there, if there ever was one other than Paul, I put myself in that number. I was highly unlikely to end up being saved. I was raised dysfunctional. I went through lots of stuff in my life. When God saved me, changed my life, and put me into ministry, it was nothing that I expected or anybody else was expecting either. In verse 17, he said, And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Wow. If, if that doesn't make you say, wow, you don't understand the cultural context of the first century. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of division in America between white and black people, especially ones that don't love the Lord. But it had nothing on Jews and Gentiles. This, this, this was a, a beyond prejudice, beyond racism. This was in deep hatred. And God tells Paul, I'm going to send you to the people that you've been opposed to. In verse 18, he said, I'm going to send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. I want you to see verse 18, and I want you to understand, if you are born again, this has happened to you. If you are not born again, this has not happened to you. If you think you're born again, but this hasn't happened to you, then hear me good. You're not born again according to God's word. I've had so many people tell me that they, they think they're saved. I have people come in my office and, and want to have a counseling session, pray for me. I'm, I'm doing this, that, and the third. I'm, I'm hooked on this, that, and the other. And I, I, I just look at them and say, have you ever considered getting saved? Oh, I'm saved. Well, how do you know you're saved? You just told me you got nine addictions, three weirdnesses, and, and all these problems, and people are just like convinced that they're saved. I, I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself this morning, what makes you think that you're truly saved? You better have a real answer for that because uh, eternity's long and hell is hot. This is what happens when somebody gets truly saved. They turn from darkness to light. They turn from the power of Satan to God. They, then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people. Because God's people are set apart by faith in God. I hope this has happened to you. It's shocking how few people. Do you know the majority of people surveyed that go to church in America say that they don't believe in a literal devil? Well, how are you going to believe on, on, on God but not on the devil? Listen, there is a real God and there is a real devil. And you are either under the power of one or the other. And there is a conversion process that God is talking about in verse 18. In verse 19, Paul goes back to addressing the king. He says, so King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea. And also to the Gentiles that all must repent of their sins and turn to God. Here's the message 
that God gave Paul to preach. And it's the same message that John the Baptist preached, and it's the same message that Jesus preached, and it's the same message that God called preachers are still preaching today. Everybody must repent of their sins and turn to God. I wonder, have you done that? He went on to say, and prove they have changed by the good things they do. I've heard it said this way many times. If you were on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence for a jury to convict you? Man, I've gone to see people on their job site. I've gone to see people in hospitals. I run into somebody else I know. Hey, Pastor Scott, uh, what, what, you, what you doing up here? I'm, like, I'm coming to see so-and-so. That's my uncle. I was just in, in his room. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, they, why are you coming to see him? No, he's, he's, he's a member of our church. Uncle Joe, go to church? Some of y'all not getting it. There better be some evidence. Prove that they have changed by the good things they do. In verse 21, some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me, but God has protected me right up to this present time so I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. I want to tell you the truth. I believe every preacher in the world who truly called by God, has had this experience. God, and I can say this for sure, God has protected me right up to this present time so I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest that Jesus is Lord. There's a protection on on God's called voices to continue to do what God's called him to do. That's why you never have to worry about uh, how long is the pastor going to stay the pastor. When God's done with me, he's going to move me on. I'm in God's hands, and God has protected me. Listen, I can tell y'all, I can tell y'all some stories that make your weave curl. I, I, I can tell y'all, I, some of y'all use straightening irons. I can tell y'all a story to turn your hair straight. Listen, God has protected me, and I thank God for that. And God will protect you if you will follow him. Verse 23 said that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, And in this way, announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Suddenly, Festus, now remember, Paul already told his story to Festus in chapter 22. Festus is a hater. Say hater. Festus is a governor. He's he's got some clout. He's got some power. But he is a hater. And in verse 24, he said, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. Now, Here's some backstory. Remember earlier, Paul said, I'm glad I'm getting to tell this story to you, King Agrippa, because I know you're an expert in all the customs of religions around the world. See, Agrippa was a well-studied man. Festus was a hothead. Agrippa was an intellectual like Paul, and Festus was sitting there between the two of them knowing he was out of place, knowing that the king understood stuff and Paul understood stuff, and he just had a little clout and a little bit of power, so he attacked him in that area that made him feel insecure. And I want to tell you something. You're going to have haters in your life, and when they begin to attack you, it's going to be in areas that make them feel insecure. I've had so many people say, Mm, I just don't like sister so-and-so. You know, she's just so holier than thou. Now, you've been around me long enough, you know what I'm going to tell you. Uh, no, she's sister so-and-so's not holier than thou. You're just mad because she's holier than you. People attacking that area 
where they feel insecure. And Festus felt like he wasn't as smart as Paul because guess what? He wasn't. Festus felt like he wasn't as smart as Agrippa, and guess what? He wasn't. So he said, too much study. Y'all book smart folk, that's just made you crazy. And in verse 25, Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Uh-oh. Be nice talking to him. <laughs> Take a lesson. He said, what I'm saying is the sober truth. Oops. Oops. Now, does this mean Festus was a drunk? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> does this mean Paul? Just calling it, you can call me out in front of the king, call me crazy. How about your drinking problem there, buddy? You over there half drunk telling me I'm crazy. You sitting up in here with alcohol smooth on your breath in front of the king. I'm telling you to sober. I'm, maybe, maybe not. Let me keep going. But verse 26, he gets to the point. He said, and King Agrippa knows about these things. See, I told you King Agrippa was intellectual. King Agrippa was well studied. King Agrippa knew the customs of the Hebrews, even though he wasn't one. He didn't follow Jehovah, but he had studied their teachings. He said, I speak boldly, for I'm sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. Uh, that, that's a backhanded telling Festus. You don't know what time of day it is, Festus, but the king knows, because the king's got his eyes open, and he sees what's going on. In verse 27, Paul says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then without giving the king a chance to respond, he immediately interjects, I know you do. If I asked you today, do you believe that Jesus Christ is real? Uh, I wouldn't interject for you that I know you do. Even though I know everybody on, on the planet believes Jesus Christ was a real person. See, if you think you're going to heaven because you believe in Jesus, well, what do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he was God come in the flesh, lived a perfect life, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day so that you could have life and live your life as a Christian? If you believe that, then you're going to go to heaven. Paul knew God was working on Agrippa. Man, if you ever get to the place where you're sharing your faith with a lost person, a family member that you care about, and you see that it's starting to get to them, see, Paul's in that position right now. He sees the power of God moving on Agrippa. He said, man, I know you believe it, king. Stop playing. Stop fronting. I know that you know what I'm talking about. But in verse 28, Agrippa snaps out of his his interest in what Paul is saying, and he goes back into his heathen king role, and he interrupts Paul, and he says, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am except in these chains. And it's my prayer this morning that everybody who hears me speak today will become the same as I am. Not five foot nine and cute, Everybody can't play that role. Uh, not, 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 you know, uh, not, not cuddly. Uh, I, I've told y'all before, stop sending me weight loss programs. I'm, my, I'm, my body's built for comfort, not for speed. I'm not talking about become country like me. I'm talking about become Christian like me. Because there's a lot of things I could tell you about Scott Becker. And if you listen to trash, you'll hear people say things about me. But I, I can tell you one thing. In spite of every failure that I've ever had, I know that I know that Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again on the third day, and on July 15, 1981, I had my own experience with God, and He saved me and changed me forever. I've said it many times, abundant life doesn't have the best pastor in the world, but abundant life is blessed to have a saved pastor. 
Because I know lots of pastors that ain't saved. And I want everybody to be changed. I want everybody to love the Lord. I want everybody to be born again. So Friday, two days ago, was my spiritual birthday. And I said you must be born again. Natural birthday and spiritual birthday. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And I want to give you a reason today for the hope that is in me. I, I, I'm ready to give you an answer. Pastor Scott, how come you ain't gave up on God yet? You broke your back twice your neck once in the last 11 years. How come you ain't gave up on God yet? You, you, you believed. I, some people, I had people say that they maybe pastor didn't stand in faith uh, when his wife was dying. I stood in so much faith when my wife died, when she died at 814 on a Sunday morning, 16 years ago yesterday, I asked the hospice nurse, what do I do now? She said, well, you just call your funeral home. They'll take it from here. I said, do you have one you recommend? She looked at me like I was crying. I had never talked to a funeral home. I had never looked at a graveside. I was believing nothing but healing for my wife. And, and, and people, people doubted. And they, listen, people are going to be haters, and people are going to doubt you all along the way. But I can tell you one thing for sure. I know that I know that there's a real God. And I know that he saved me. And I know that you need to be willing to give an answer, not for everything in the world, because we can't answer everything, but you ought to give an answer for the hope that is in you. I told you earlier, there's power in your testimony. And if you don't hear anything, hear this and get it in your heart. Start going around telling people what God did for you. Start going around telling people what God did for you. I got heavy into apologetics when I was in seminary. Um, and that's defending the Christian faith with... Uh, Scripture. It's really, it's professional arguing over doctrine. And God pulled me away from that and made me understand, listen, I can quote Scripture. The person disagreeing with me can quote Scripture. I can say what I believe the Bible teaches about this particular issue. They can say what they believe the Bible teaches about this particular issue. I can articulate well what I believe the Scripture says. They can articulate well what they believe the Scripture says. Or they can articulate well what they believe uh, their particular religion says but I, I figured this out a long time ago they can argue with what I believe about the words in this book but they can't argue with me about whether or not God changed my life on July 15 1981 because I was there they don't know what I know about my testimony so I'm gonna tell you real quick about my testimony why am I gonna tell you this because I want you to hear it again no because I want you to understand that you need to have one too See, a Christian without a testimony is just a church person who's deceived themselves into thinking they're born again. You've got a testimony if you're saved. You had a Damascus Road experience when you got saved. It, it not, might not be the, like the Apostle Paul's. It might not be like mine. But you had one, and you need to learn how to articulate your testimony. Because here's the thing. The world needs to hear that God saves people. The world needs to hear that Jesus is real and that he changes lives. Personally, I grew up in church. I was put in church from the earliest days. My mama had me christened in the Catholic church as a small baby. Uh, I'm going to tell you what. I, I, love, I love the Catholic church. I love all people. But dressing up little boys in dresses and having some man that won't marry a woman pour water on their head is not going to get them into heaven. <laughs> I'm just leaving it at that. 
So I was born into the Catholic Church, but my parents got divorced in the 60s. And back then, if you got divorced in the Catholic Church, they didn't care who was right, who was wrong, who did what to who. They just kicked everybody out. They're like, nah, we don't have no, want none of y'all in our church. So we did what the whole rest of the world did. We became Baptists. Uh, <laughs> they, they kicked us out, and I started riding a church bus to school, and that's it. Uh, a church bus to church and that set me on my path about learning about true Christianity but a little backdrop uh, people always ask me everywhere I go people ask me where are you from and I know they're not concerned with my geographical place of birth they're concerned with how in the world did you get to talking like that and so I just I blow their mind and and it's factual when they say where are you from I know they're talking about my accent I, I say oh you probably hear, hear the my, my you know accent yeah, where, where, where are you from? Uh, California. San Diego. That's probably what you're picking up on. That's, that's my SoCal accent you're probably catching. And they look at me like, you know, it can't be. And I say, oh, okay, well, um, may, may, maybe that's not what it is. Uh, I, I didn't live in California long. I actually went to kindergarten, first and second grade in England. So that's probably the British accent you hear. And they're like, no, dude, that's Kentucky. That, that's, that, that's Georgia, I hear. And then, then I tell them that I grew up in Florida, and they, then they tell me again, are you sure? Because that sounds more like Georgia. I'm like, no, I know where I grew up. But when my parents got divorced, we were living in England, and we moved to Virginia uh, when we came back to America between second and third grade. And I rode the church bus uh, to a little church with my sister called Grace Brethren Church. And I was in the third grade. When I walked the aisle uh, in that church, and I told the preacher I wanted to go to heaven, and we prayed, I was baptized, and they gave me this little red Bible. And I kept this little red Bible, uh, number one, if you know me, I keep everything. Um, but I kept it because it was important to me. It signified something to me. Um, it was given to me, uh, and I was told that it was special. So I kept it, and I always kept it right on my nightstand, and it just became a permanent fixture in my room. And a couple years later, in 1975, when I was 11 years old, we moved to Jacksonville. We moved to the west side of Jacksonville. We lived right up the street off Hillman Road. Anybody know where Hillman is? We lived, uh, you, let me throw my mom on point, uh, test her in front of everybody. You even remember what the name of the first street we lived on in Jacksonville? I know Dina's nodding. I said my mom. Um, huh? Volvo. Dina's mouthing. We, we, any of y'all been back there off Hillman and seen all those Jaguar, Volvo, Renault? I'm like, well, y'all just naming streets after bad cars? That was 1975. We came, moved to the west side of Jacksonville, and I started riding the church bus to a church called uh, Normandy ba uh, West Normandy Baptist Church on Normandy Boulevard. And I thank God for Jack Rickenback. Jack Rickenback was the bus driver. He came by one. We had left. We, we upgraded. We left uh, Volvo. We got off 103rd and Hillman, and we moved to Country Creek. Woo! We were in, li living, in, living in the fancy subdivision. And Jack Rickenback came by one day on a Saturday, and a bunch of us were outside. And he said, my name's Jack Rickenback, and I drive the church bus. And I give away candy to everybody who rides my bus. You be at that stop sign in the morning at 9 o'clock, and I'm going to give you a ride to church. I thought, I don't care much about church, but I'm going to see you at 9 for that candy. 
And we started riding the church bus to West Normandy Baptist Church. My sister and I, we got really involved in the youth group there. Uh, it was 1975, and I still have it. I told you all, I, I keep stuff. I still have in my, I never knew how precious it would become to me. But in 1975, when we first moved to Jacksonville, started going to West Normandy Baptist Church, I had a Sunday school teacher sign my vacation Bible school certificate, and it was Gail's mom. I never, I didn't know I was going to grow up to marry her little daughter, uh, but I sure did. And that's kind of how I got into uh, church here in the state of Florida. And we, the most involved I'd gotten in my lifetime up until that point was in that youth group at West Normandy Baptist Church. We went to youth camp that year, and the preacher challenged everyone to carry our Bibles to school every day. And this was the only Bible I had back then. Some of y'all got three, four, five Bibles. Um, I got several Bibles of my own, but this, this was the only Bible I had back then, and I started uh, carrying this Bible. The preacher, he said, I dare you, little country preacher, uh, Herman Moore, and I had a nose on him about this big, and when he preached, he'd just do like this to it, and I'm like, is he wringing his nose? It looks pain, but old country Herman Moore, he said, I, I double dare you, and it was youth camp, and there's a bunch of little boys, and then and I'm like, oh, you ain't about to dare me, old man. Now, if you know me, uh, I got a long streak of stupid in me. You know, self-awareness is a good thing. And it, it manifests. If somebody dares me, to, please don't dare me. Don't, don't even, even today. I'm about to be 59 years old. I, I got a bad back, a bad neck. I got a uh, tumor inside my head that they're going to cut out on August 17th as big as a ping pong ball. But if you dared me right now to climb on this roof and do a one and a half somersault and land on my face, think about it if you double dared me and offered me a Dr. Pepper and a hot now donut from Krispy Kreme with some milk we're in his man dared me he put me on test he's like I dare you don't be a coward oh now you're attacking my you over here attacking my 13 year old manhood please I'll do it and, man, they did something to us in the seventh grade. Uh, thank God they put an end to busing. They bussed us from Normandy Boulevard to James Weldon Johnson's seventh grade center on Kings Road, way down past the General Mail Center. And I got in there, and I thought, oh, we're in trouble here. I'm glad I got this Bible. Because they, 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 they had big tongue uh, at, at James Weldon Johnson 7th grade center and he was 16 years old in the 7th grade and he drove himself to school this is a true story you, you think there ain't a reason for social promotion I ain't big on social promotion but I wish he wouldn't have been in the 7th grade because we would be pitching say y'all don't even do stuff like this anymore we, anybody remember pitching quarters on the school wall we'd be pitching quarters, nickels, whatever we had uh, and my man he would just come by he would just walk by and lean down and grab it all and just look at it What's up, man? Enjoy that quarter. Boy, out of, no, nobody said anything. But I was going to James Weldon Johnson 7th grade center, and I was carrying my Bible every day. 
and I was getting ragged for it. I mean, I was getting ragged, but you know what? The preacher, not only did he double dare us, he called, he called us cowards, and he said, I'm not talking about putting it in your locker room. I'm talking about, and I carried this Bible to school in the seventh grade on, at James Weldon Johnson, seventh grade center on King's Road, on top of the stack of whatever I was carrying. Everywhere I went, every class I went, I was carrying this Bible. Left there, went to Stillwell Junior High School on the west side of Jacksonville in eighth grade, and I was carrying this Bible every day. And it was then people started getting, you know, wilding out. And people were like, uh, you want to you wanna come hang out with us after school? We're going to go into the woods and smoke some weed. I'm like, I'm a Christian. I don't do that kind of stuff. You want to see my little red Bible? What's wrong with you, heathen? Are y'all going to hell? I ain't trying to go to hell. The preacher said, if you don't want to go to hell, carry your Bible to school. Bad theology, but hey, he dared me, so I'm in. So that was eighth grade for me. And I'm, I'm telling y'all what Paul told Festus and what Paul told Agrippa and what Paul told everybody. He would tell them how he came to Christ. And so ninth grade comes along. Now, he, here, here was something dramatic in ninth grade. Eighth grade was awesome. Eighth grade was fantastic because seventh grade wasn't so great. Seventh grade, I had to go to school without my sister. My sister sitting right over there. She's a year older than me. I'm going to be 59 next week, so y'all know what that makes her. Uh, I'm, I didn't tell y'all she was 60. Y'all like, oh, oh, oh. But, but here's the thing. She was always like a mother figure in my life. She was always taking care of me. She was always looking out for me. She was always better than me at everything. And so it was easier when we were in the same school together. If you ever had a sibling, you, you understand some of that. Dynamic. And that had some bad stuff, too, because there was no living up to her. Um, she was always, you know, involved in school government. She was the, the president of her class. She was National Honor Society. She was head cheerleader, head flag girl. Uh, she was even, when we'd play Red Rover, Red Rover, uh, or we'd play pickup. They always picked her before they picked me. I mean, it was like she, she was, she's always been iconic in my life. So eighth grade was awesome because um, I was Dina Becker's brother again. We're, we're in the same school, and she's a cheerleader, so she knew all the hot chicks were helped out and worked good for me. Um, she was popular, so she knew all the popular people worked out good for me. Uh, but then ninth grade happened, and this was back, you know, how they did it now. Uh, how they do it now is different. In ninth grade, just kept going to junior high school. Uh, Ed White High School was only 10th and 11th and 12th grade. And in, when I went into the ninth grade, she went into the 10th grade. And we weren't in school anymore. And so she was off at a different school. And I was stuck at Stillwell Junior High School by myself. Now, I'm still carrying my little red Bible to school every day because I don't let a dare go. And I, I wasn't reading it very much. I wasn't living by it, but I was carrying it to school. She went off to Ed White High School, and as happens, she got around older people, and peer pressure kicked in, and she started doing stuff that she hadn't done before and certainly that I had never done before. And one day we were walking uh, through a neighborhood. We were, actually, we were riding bikes, and we had stopped uh, to sit and look in this house. We were looking at a house. They were building a new house up the street from ours, and we were checking that out. And she did something that was shocking. She hates this part of my testimony, but it's real, and she knows it's real. You still got that purple bag? You sure? Don't you be tempted with me with nothing in 2000 and whatever year it is, 22. This, this was way back. This was way, way back. I graduated high school in 1981. 
This, this was when I was in the ninth grade. We're sitting on, on, on the side of the road, and she said, hey, you want to smoke a joint? My honor society, national honor society uh, head of it. I mean, my sister was in, she was in beauty contests. I was in nothing. I was in dummy contests. I, I was, I was uh, most humiliating outside today's service I ever did. Uh, she was in a beauty contest one day, and I screamed out because I've always been so proud of my sister. I said, that's my sister in the booty contest. I knew it meant beauty, but I, anyway, so we sit on the road. She said, you want to smoke a joint? I was stunned. I was flabbergasted. This is my hero. This is, the, this is the person that took care of me in life. This is the person I looked up to. She was good at everything. And she's asking me, do I want? I'm like, we don't do that. We're Christians. She was the president of our youth group. She was the president of everything growing up. She was, I'm like, we don't do that. Carry my Bible to school. She's like, it's not that bad. Bug does it. Bug. Bug was her friend from up the street. Let me tell you something. If your kids come home and they're hanging around somebody named Bug, Eight Ball, Ray Ray, Pookie, kick them to the curb. She said, Bug. I'm like, well, if Bug does it. And she, she went into her pocket and she pulled out this purple bag with a gold cord. How many of y'all know about that purple bag? All y'all need Jesus. She pulled out this crown... This chick been out there drinking hard liquor, doing drugs, and now peddling them on her little brother who just wants to live up to her shadow. I'm like, hey, oh, well, if Bug does it, as well. I mean, obviously, anybody named Bug got to know what they're doing. And, uh, I, and, and my mom's laughing. Here's the thing. My mom always thought my sister could do no wrong and every, every, everything uh, – I, I did was wrong. You need to understand, your little angel drug me into a life of debauchery. Your little angel introduced me to, to drugs and alcohol. Facts. I'm telling you all about facts right now. Power in a testimony. I haven't always been a preacher. I haven't always been a Bible co quoter. I haven't always been somebody that loved Jesus. And I, I, that started me down a road that got so bad that by the time I got to Ed White High School, uh, boy, my sister, she don't do anything halfway. If you ever seen her do a, a project, she doesn't do anything halfway. She, she, didn't, she didn't take drugs and alcohol lightly. She took them heavily. And by the time I got to Ed White High School, we were riding around with, with full-gallon jugs of uh, whole-grain alcohol in our trunks. When you go out between classes to your car and you open a trunk in the Florida heat to grab a plastic jug full of Everclear and you start kicking back whole grain alcohol as a teenager, you got a drinking problem. And so that began to spiral out and I began to do more and more drugs, more and more alcohol, started getting in trouble with the police, ended up getting arrested. My mama used to have to come get me out of school uh, when, when they would suspend me. She had to come get me out of jail. She finally told me one time, I'm, not, I'm never coming to get you out of jail again. I can't do anything with you. You're uncontrollable. I didn't raise you to be like this. Um, I will never come get you out of jail again. I'm thinking, sure you will. I got arrested. Uh, I was in St. Augustine. I got arrested. I got put in that uh, county jail. 
They called my mom, and this is, man, I used to have such a problem. See, most unsaved people don't like police. Uh, most unsaved people don't like authority at all. And I, I, I really, I, I took my, my, my cop hatred to a whole new level that day because it was textbook. It was like it was on a movie, but it was real. Because some of y'all know if you're a cop hater, you think all cops are big fat dudes eating a donut, right? And legit story. I'm sitting in a jail. 1981, St. Augustine, Florida, and this big old donut-eating, fat-bellied cop comes up to me. Boy, you must be a real piece of work. Your mama don't even love you. Just talked to your mama on the phone, told her you're arrested, sitting in jail because you're a minor. We can't release you to your own recognizance. She said, I don't care what you do with him. I ain't coming to get him. And he, <laughs> I mean, I thought, man. You let me out from between these bars. In my 17-year-old mind, I thought I was going to grab a grown man. Let me say something to every young boy in the room. You don't, you don't want to grab no grown man. But anyway, uh, they finally they released me to my own recognizance because their courts were backed up, and they didn't want to hold me forever. And I realized that day, wow, things are getting bad. Things are getting bad. My sister had moved off to college. I didn't have her there to protect me anymore. My, my, my mom wouldn't come get me out of jail. Things are getting bad. But I just continued. I, when I graduated high school, I didn't go on to college. I didn't go get a job. I didn't uh, think about, you know, trade school, any, anything like that. I was a professional criminal. I was breaking into homes, stealing stuff. Um, I, I was just living that type of life. I was making money selling drugs. Uh, we, we used to sell fake drugs on the west side of Jacksonville. We, we'd buy diet pills and, and sell them as speed tablets. Some of y'all bought that stuff. Uh, listen, made me money, so I was happy about it. But I, would, I had no idea what my life was going to be. I was just living for the moment. And I was out at a party one night. Hear this part and I'll be done. I was driving home from a party one night, July 14th. I'd gone to a party that night, 1981. And I was riding home at about 3 o'clock in the morning on July 15th. And if you've ever been drunk and high, if you've ever been uh, living that type of lifestyle, you know you do not want to fall asleep while you're driving. So I had the window rolled down in my car. I had my shirt off, had my head hanging out, you know, trying to get some of that fresh air to stay awake. Anybody know? Y'all know what I'm talking about. But you know what I'm talking about? And so I'm, I'm, I'm in that thing, and I'm trying to get home. And I'd, I'd been out doing drugs and drinking. I came in. It had gotten so bad in my home, my mom had moved me into the garage. Converted it, made it a livable place, but I'd come home late and wake everybody up stumbling in the house. So she's like, I got to get you out of this main house. You're off the chain. Put me out in the garage. Well, I came in, and I was going to walk through the garage to get something to eat. Why? Because I was high, and, you know, it's time to eat. It's 3.30 in the morning, and I don't care who I was going to wake up. Had my shirt in my hand. Walked through. I could walk through my bedroom and get into the main house. So I was going to do that. Uh, had my shirt in my hand. I walked through threw my shirt off on my bed and was going to go into the main house, and I turned back and I looked. And half my shirt was on the bed and half of it was on the red Bible. See, that red Bible had never left where I set it down the last time I touched it. It was on my nightstand. And every week, uh, we, I'd, I'd have to, my mom made us dust the house every week. I'd, ha I'd dust around that Bible, and it was just a piece of furniture to me. But on that day, it was like I was frozen in time, and I just stared at that little red Bible. It's like I saw it for the first time in years. Man, I ain't, 
why am I seeing that? And I saw it all the time, but I wasn't seeing it. And I never went into the main part of the house. I walked over, moved my shirt out of the way, and I just opened up this Bible. I just started flipping through it. I saw some stuff underlined in there from when I used to go to church. Started reading that. The power of God fell on me in that room. At 6956 Malden Lane on the west side of Jacksonville. And God let me know right then that that prayer I prayed in the third grade didn't make me a real Christian. See, I'd been in church. I'd, I'd seen people fake Christians. I knew all the church language. And I got down on my knees between my wall and my bed, and I prayed, and I asked God, please, God, save me, be real to me, make me a real Christian. And I remember I said, make, I don't want to be a fake Christian like Jimmy. He was our pastor's son. I said, I want to be a real Christian like Peter, James, and John. And I spent the rest of that night reading the Bible, singing songs that I'd learned in vacation Bible school, singing songs that we used to sing on the church bus. And I just stayed up, and I, I prayed, and I read the Bible, and I prayed, and I read the Bible. And that afternoon, somebody called me on the phone. There's a friend of mine named Mark, and this is the guy I got in all my trouble with as a kid. And this, is, this, this is the guy I was selling drugs with. And he said, man, you ain't going to believe what happened to me yesterday. I said, dude, you're not going to believe what happened to me just a few hours ago, he said, well, listen, you, you remember Ted Boone from Normandy Park? I said, yeah, everybody knows Ted Boone. He said, I lost a bet to him playing basketball, and I got to go to church with him. And you need to go with me because I can't go there by myself. I'm like, bet, I don't want to go. And I started to try to talk to him. He's like, man, I got to go. Be at my house Sunday morning. We're going to ride to church with Ted Boone. Hold off on that for just a minute, Victor. And so I'd never heard of the Hillcrest Baptist Church. On the, on the corner of Plymouth and LaBelle. I, I, I'd never, I hadn't been to church in years. I was out there living wild and crazy. I went to church on a Sunday morning because my buddy had lost a bet in his mind. I went because I was excited about what was happening to me. And it was there. That girl was there right there. She was there at that church when I, when I first went, when I first met Connie and a bunch of other real Christians for the first time in my life. And I went to church that Sunday morning. And the preacher is so funny. He's related to Herman Moore. His name was Benny Moore. And he gave an invitation. And he said, if you want to come and get saved or if you've gotten saved this week and you need to make your public uh, confession of faith in Jesus Christ, and I walked down that aisle and I told him I got saved in my bedroom. And he did the exact same thing to me that preacher did when I was in the third grade. He turned me around in front of the people and he said, this is Scott Becker. And he comes today to make public confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you celebrate that decision, let me know by saying amen. And everybody said amen, and they all clapped. They did that for me in the third grade, but the difference was in the third grade, I didn't really get saved. I prayed a prayer, shook the preacher's hand. He told all the people, but the Bible says you'll find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Well, I'd search for God with my whole heart on my, bed, on my floor between my bed and my window and pray and ask God to save me for real, and he did it. And they told me we got church tonight at 6 o'clock. So... I went back to church at 6 o'clock. Monday, uh, I, I met a few people, and they, Sunday night, they said, hey, we got youth Bible study tomorrow. Now, I don't know if you remember uh, this particular Bible study, but Bob and Tommy did it. They'd put a, they'd put a coffin 
in the youth room with a mirror in it. And they had all of us walk by and look in that coffin to, to see a dead person. And they were teaching we need to be dead to Christ. And that thing uh, gripped me. And they told me, they said, a couple of young people, Eddie Pitts and Mike Pelham, people you know well, they said, uh, well, we're going to watch the men play softball tomorrow. You want to go with us? And I'm like, I got nothing else to do. I was literally reading seven, eight, ten hours a day worth of Bible. I was either in my bedroom reading the Bible or I was at church. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go. Went to church, uh, went to a uh, men's softball game. They said, hey, we got midweek Bible study tomorrow. You want to go? I'm like, yeah, I want to go. And went to midweek Bible study. They told me at, at Wednesday night church, they said, tomorrow we got door-to-door soul winning visitation. You want to go? Yeah, I want to go. I went out the first week I'd been saved, knocking on people's door, telling them about Jesus. They told me when I went to uh, visitation, they said, hey, Friday and Saturday, we do a thing at the church called the Peacemakers for young people. It's really cool. Uh, we have music, and we have great preaching, and you want to go? I said, yeah, I want to go. Friday night, I was back in church. Saturday night, back in church. Sunday morning, back to church. Sunday night, back to church. Monday night, youth Bible study. Tuesday, went to watch men play softball. Again, Wednesday night, midweek Bible study. Thursday, back in church. So, went to visitation. Friday, Saturday night was the peacemaker. Again, Sunday morning, I was back in church. Sunday night, back in church. Monday, youth Bible study. Tuesday, went to watch men play softball. Wednesday night, midweek Bible study. Thursday, so went to visitation. Friday, Saturday, back at the Peacemaker. Sunday morning, back in church. Sunday night, back in church. Wednesday, youth Bible study. Tuesday, the whole world felt like it had come to an end. The men weren't playing softball. Well, what are we going to do? It's the summer of 1981. Me and this handful of people, we've been together every day that I've been saved for the last three and a half weeks. So we met at the Normandy Mall, and we sat on the tops of our cars, and we, we sang, we read scripture to each other, and, and we sang songs. And, and listen, it was so, I was so radically into Christ from the very beginning, my mother called the Hillcrest Baptist Church and said, I want to know what y'all done to my son. Y'all brainwashed him. Now, this is how mad lost people get at you if you get saved for real. My mother had been begging me for years to leave the house in tears. I can't do nothing with you. You're the devil. Get out of my, you only come to my house to wash clothes and, and, and to eat my food. And now I get saved and I'm living for the Lord and she still ain't happy. Pray for her. So my sister was away to college. She came back home from college. She, she hadn't seen any of this going to church every night for weeks and weeks and weeks reading my Bible. I still got journals from the first month of salvation where I was reading 10 plus hours a day of Scripture. And my sister comes home, and one day I was sitting on the couch. I never had washed clothes or folded clothes other than my own in my lifetime. And I just trying to, you know do everything I could to be a better person. I'd gathered up some towels in the house, and I'd washed towels, and I was folding some towels on the couch. And my sister came, and she said, this is ridiculous. I don't know what's going on in your life. What, what, why, why, what has happened to you? And I shared with her that I got saved. And she's like, we've been Christians forever. And I'm like, no, I got really changed by the power of God. And my sister got saved shortly thereafter. And then my mom, my mom really went, went into irritation mode then because me and my sister started telling my mom, you need to get saved too. My mom, I took y'all to church when y'all were babies. I, I, I'm the only real Christian in this house. Y'all, y'all just sick in your head. Uh, and she was just angry at us because we're telling her she needs to get saved. What am I telling you? You get saved for real, people around you are going to get uncomfortable because they're going to know you've got something they don't have. And it wasn't long after that 
I remember uh, my mom finally agreed to come to church with us. And we had been inviting her for months to come to church. And she finally agreed to come to church with us. And I was so excited. And I walked in, and I saw Brother Moore wasn't there. Connie Johnson was preaching. I thought, oh, man, I wanted her to hear the pastor. Listen, it ain't in the person doing the preaching. It's in what they're preaching about. And Connie Johnson preached, and he gave an invitation. And me and my sister were kind of like, we didn't want to stare at her. We were, and my mom got out from behind that pew, and she walked down the aisle, and she prayed to receive Christ. And it was so exciting. Several years after that, I got a chance to be in a church service with my little brother Mark, who's gone on to heaven, and watch him walk the aisle and pray to receive Christ. And my whole family got saved. See, the Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, and so will your whole house. And I and I I'd lived through that, and that's that's how I got introduced to Christ. And anytime I start feeling bad about what's going on in my life, here's what I do: I didn't I didn't have a Damascus Road experience, but I go back to that experience on 6956 Malden Lane, where God became real to me for the very first time. And I think, you know what? What I'm going through right now is nothing compared to the great thing you did for me on July 15, 1981. And I have never forgotten that God saved me, and I've never gotten over the fact that he saved me when he didn't have to. There wasn't nothing savable in me. I, I wasn't somebody that God needed, and nobody is. But he saved me by his grace, his love, and his mercy, and he changed my life. See, the Bible says if you're really saved, you become a new person. And I am so burdened for people who are, are in that place where I was between the third grade and the time I got really saved. They were in church, but not really saved. They'd had some type of experience with God, but not true salvation. And there are people in this room right now, you think you're truly saved. You'll tell people that, but on the inside, you know that it's not right in your heart. You know that it's not well in your soul. And I want to tell you this morning, you need a real testimony. You need a real experience with God. You need to have a life-changing, soul-shaking, spirit-filled, radical difference made in your life that only can come through true salvation. And if you've never had that, you're not saved. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how much you come to church. Doesn't matter how much scripture you can read. If you have never had a true born-again experience, then I'm going to tell you something. You need to have a true born-again experience today. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think in your mind. When did you receive him? Don't answer out loud, but think in your mind. Where were you when salvation happened to you? If you say, well, I don't know, I just kind of became. No, that's not how it happens. Everybody in this room knows exactly where you were when you were born. There's a time stamped on your birth certificate where you were born, when it happened. It was an event. Now, listen, you might not remember exactly where you, you might not remember if it was a Sunday or if it was a Monday. You might not remember what, what, who was preaching. You might not remember everything about it, but you remember something about it if it happened to you. Why? Because it happened to you. If I came down off, off, off this pulpit right now and I walked all the way to the back and I slapped Terry in his face, 5, 10, 20 years from now, he might not remember my name. He might not remember if it was a Sunday morning or, or Wednesday night, but he would remember some white dude preaching came down off the pulpit. Why, why would he remember that? Because it's something, if it was real and it happened to him, he, knew, he would remember it. 
See, salvation is something that's real and it needs to happen to you. And if you don't have a testimony, if you don't have a Damascus road, if you don't have a time in your life where God saved you and changed you, that's the proof of real salvation. Not that you come to church, but that you've been made a different person. That you became a new person in Christ. If this hasn't happened to you, I want to encourage you today. Get saved for real. Some of you have tried so many times. We got people in this, in this room right now that have walked aisles and prayed prayers two, three, four, five times. Raised their hand every time there's a gospel invitation. <clears throat> Listen, if you ever get saved for real, you won't need to keep trying to get saved. The Bible says salvation is eternal. And if you would just get saved for real one time, it would change you forever. You say, well, what, what do I have to do? Well, the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. But it's not just a head knowledge. It's a heart knowledge. See, I believe George Washington was the president of the United States. I wouldn't bet my eternity on it. It could all be a lie. But I know that I know that I know Jesus Christ is God. And that he lived on this planet. And that they crucified him on a hill called Calvary. And they buried him in a borrowed tomb. And because he's God, he rose from the dead to be the firstborn so that we could have resurrection too. And if you haven't experienced that life-changing, soul-shaking, spiritual phenomenon called the born-again experience, I want to invite you today. You don't have to know all the answers. You just have to be willing. God said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of y'all are irritated right now. It shows on your face. Some of y'all are antsy. You wish this would be over. Listen, you need salvation more than you know. But the good news is God said whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever means anybody. I'm a whosoever. You should be a whosoever too. If you're here and you're not truly saved, I want to encourage you to get saved today. Don't put it off. Tomorrow's not promised. You don't know what the, what the rest of the day is going to hold. And you need to get your life right with the Lord. I'm so thankful for July 15th. Every year I think about it and I remind myself, God, you saved me for real. And I'm so grateful. It changed my life forever. And I want to see that happen for you. If that has happened for you, I want you to start remembering how good God has been to you. Remember that you haven't always been like this either. But some of you haven't had that change in your life, and you need to have it today. Pray with me. God, thank you for salvation. God, I thank you for saving me. Showing yourself real to me. Changing me. God, I pray for everyone in this room, Lord. I pray for everyone who's a true Christian, Lord, that you would give us a sense of urgency to love you more and to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, I pray for every person in this room that thinks they're saved but isn't. I pray right now that you would give them a divine, supernatural awareness that they need true Holy Ghost salvation. God, I pray that you'd make their heart beat faster. God, that you would cause, cause your spirit to flood over them with unease right now. God, I pray that you would chase them down with your grace and your love and your mercy. Father, salvation is a work of the Lord. It belongs to you. You're the only one who can draw them, God. You said that they can't come to you unless you draw them. So I pray right now that you would draw unsaved people to true salvation. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this room, I don't want anyone looking around right now. If you're here and you'd say, Pastor Scott, I'm not even sure if I'm born again, but I know I want to be. Or if you'd say, I know I'm not saved. 
but I know I need to be. If you're here and you'd say, Pastor Scott, pray for me that I can give my heart to the Lord. I want you to know you don't need me to pray for you. You need to pray for yourself. I will pray for you, but you need to pray for yourself. The Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, he'll save you. And I'm going to pray a prayer. This prayer is not magic. This prayer won't save you, but God knows your heart. And if you mean it, God will save you. I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. I want you to pray it silently. If you're here and you need to be saved, I'm not talking about get saved again for the 500th time. I'm talking about getting saved for real. I'm talking about giving your heart to God for real once and for all and, and becoming that person that God created you to be. I'm going to pray a prayer, and if you want to be saved, I want you to pray this silently. The Bible says God can hear the thoughts in your head. So if you want to get saved today and you mean business with God, when I pray this out loud, you pray it silently in your heart. Just say something like this. Dear God, I believe you're real. And I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that he was raised from the dead. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and save me. Make me a real Christian. Make me the person you created me to be. Save me now, God. Help me to be all that you want me to be. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just ask God to save you, if you just prayed that or something like that, and you just ask God to save you, and, and you're not ashamed of that fact, the Bible says whosoever believes in him should not be ashamed. With nobody looking but me, if you'd say, Preacher, I prayed that prayer and I asked God to save me, I just want you to slip your hand up right now. Just say, I prayed that. All right. All right. Anybody else? Okay. Anybody else? You say, I prayed that prayer and I asked God to save me, preacher. Amen. You can put your hands down. Here, 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 I want everybody to look up at me right now. Some of you raised your hand and you said you prayed that prayer to receive Christ. Some, some of you didn't raise your hand and you know you prayed that prayer, but you just got scared in the moment. Here's what God said. Jesus said, if you confess me before people, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven on judgment day. I want to help you get started off right. And some of you have done this before, but you need to do it again. If you believe God just saved you today, if you prayed that prayer, whether you raised your hand or not, if you ask God to save you today and you're not ashamed of that fact and you want to make your confession, he said, if you confess me in front of people, there's people in this room, he said, I'll confess you on judgment day. I want to make sure you get into heaven when you die. If you ask God to save you today and you meant business with God, I want you just to do something right now as a way to make your confession in front of people. I just want you to stand up where you are so we can rejoice with you. If you say, I prayed that prayer this morning, preacher, I'm not going to ask you to come down front. I'm just going to have you stand up where you are. If you say, I prayed that prayer, I asked God to save me, and I'm not ashamed of it. I want you to stand to your feet right now. Amen. Both at the same time. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to the AOCF Sound Doctrine Podcast. And visit us on the web at aocfnow.org. Your financial support for this ministry allows us to share the gospel around the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to give a donation, please go to aocfnow.org. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people.